0: What's up, fam? You're about to hear a message from Hope Valley Church in Denver, Colorado. We are a new Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible church and campus ministry in Denver, Colorado. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for like a day or a whole lifetime, we trust that this message will help you take your next steps to follow him. If you're in the Denver metro area, we would love for you to come and worship with us. You can check us out at our website at hvdenver.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to follow, like, subscribe, however you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Oh, and share. Now, let's jump in. I was listening to the radio earlier this week, and I, and I heard the story of this lady uh, who ended up uh, breeding hermit crabs. It turns out that hermit crabs are kind of a fascinating creature. Uh, crabs, or hermit crabs in particular, uh, in captivity, they only live like as long as it takes to get them home and watch them for a couple hours, right? But, but in the wild, they live like 30 to 70 years. I mean, these are like, these things live forever. And when I heard that, I felt really bad about my childhood because uh, we were going through them like goldfish. I mean, it was like, I I was like, oh, man, we'd paint their shells and race them across the floor. And, you know, like, we thought we were doing really great, but really it was just a murder operation. And so this is me confessing uh, publicly before you (laughs) that um, so if you're in any organizations that protect animals, I'm repentant and I'm sorry, and I will not buy any more hermit crabs. But apparently hermit crabs are very, very difficult to breed in captivity, and so uh, they're only brought in from places where they they're, they grew up in the wild, where they've bred in the wild and they're brought in. And they're in, for many years, they were thought to be impossible to breed in, in captivity. And it, uh, the speculation around why it was impossible, uh, there are a couple a couple of ideas. One, it was a really complicated thing, and they were trying and failing. Two, the uh, hermit crabs just weren't delicious, so there wasn't a lot of motivation for people to learn how to do it. And that's what they said on the podcast. So, so you know, somehow, somehow if it was delicious, we would have found a way to, to breed them much more quickly. So it would cost less to bring them over, but that's not what happened. And so this lady had a hermit crab and and it was in her, was in her tank and she was watching it, just kind of loving it and taking good care of it. And then she noticed these growths and it turns out that the growths were eggs. And so she got another hermit crab and she wanted to, to breed that home. And she knew that they were hard to breed. And so she was like I'm going to take the best care of these hermit crabs that they've ever received in their entire life. And so she made it her goal to keep the water clean and the cage clean and the space clean. And, and they actually successfully made it and, and had some offspring. And the offspring we're swimming around in the little pool. And so she's like using a, a baster. She was like emptying the water and replacing the water. You know, it's all salt water and taking good care of it and keeping it clean and taking. So they were growing up. And then, you know, she had thousands of these things in the tank. And, and so she was like going to crack the code. And then when it was time for them to come out of the water and come onto land, they just started dying off. And she, and it went from a thousand little baby hermit crabs to zero crabs in very short time. And she was devastated. She was so angry. Um, And and she was upset about this. And so she's like, I'm going to figure this out. And so she tried again the next summer and the next year. And she tried it again. And then she tried it again the next year. But this year, she was going to try and do something different. She was going to take less good care of them. And in taking less good care of them, she was going to leave their water a little bit dirty. And she was going to do it occasionally. And she was going to like try not to care so much. One, to guard her own heart. But two, because she thought maybe her care of them was getting in the way of their ability to enter into the fullness of the life that she wanted them to have. You're preaching your own sermon now already. So maybe I did this in the wrong order. And so so what she does is she created a chaotic environment. And she took care of them sometimes and didn't other times. She cleaned it sometimes and cleaned it well other times. She mixed the water in the tanks and she moved them from one to the other and she was kind of abrasive with them and she was rough on them. And sure enough, when it came time for them to walk up onto land, she she even put a little treadmill in there to make it hard for them to get up onto the land. And it turns out that as they got up onto this little hermit crab baby treadmill thing to get up onto the land, it turned out they started crossing. And and day one, she saw the first one cross and she was crying. she was like, I can't believe it. She's like, Henry's going to live. And I named him Henry. She didn't. Henry's going to make it. And then, and then sure enough, Martha started crossing and Lucy started crossing and, and Bertha started crossing and Alex and Jebediah and Alejandro. And it was a multi-ethnic hermit crab society. We was grown up out of it. It was like hermit crab. Like, like if, if I'd put more time into this, I would have come up with a, an Abraham reference. But many nations were coming from these hermit crabs. And they were crossing. And, and so before she knew it, she had thousands of hermit crabs. Like, uh, or hundreds of therm- hermit crabs in this, in this instance. And, and there they were. And she was, she was bringing them to life. And she wrote a blog about it. She was keeping a blog. And the experts were like, what on earth did you do? And she's like, I kind of didn't take care of them. I kind of made it hard for them. I kind of created some chaos. And, and out of the chaos, they lived. And it turns out this woman stumbled on something that they hadn't quite been able to sort out. And that's that in a perfectly pristine environment, they weren't able to thrive. And the chaos of the that she had created resembled the chaos of the ocean. And it turns out these hermit crabs needed the chaos of the ocean in order to thrive and live the most life it could live. Now here's the crazy thing about the ocean and this is why it's so confusing is that the chaos that the hermit crab needs to live is not the chaos that other creatures needed to live. And so sometimes the chaos that the hermit crab needs is, is not what the other one needs, and sometimes the chaos that the other one needs is not the one that the hermit crab needs, but the chaos of the ocean is somehow at the same time churning up enough difficulty and enough interruption and enough confusion that all of these species are coming up at the same time needing different circumstances. You hear the sermon already, don't you? Today we're going to talk about interruptions. And we're going to talk about the interruptions that God brings so that we can experience the fullness of life. But in order to do this, we're actually going to do a survey of Scripture. And we're going to see a whole bunch of different characters in Scripture. But we're going to, we're going to leap out of one of them. So Wayne, if you could come forward with me, please. We're going to leap out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you could go ahead and stand to your feet to read this with us. Because participation is better than? Observation. Uh, like half of us got it. Participation is better than observation. There it is. It's only like two verses. So read this with Wayne. He's going to set the pace and then he'll pray for all of us. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good word. Father, we thank you for this word and we pray that the essence of it will go deep into our hearts and change us as we walk out of here today. We pray for David as he delivers it that your that your intended message would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you intended. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Go ahead and be seated. So the word of God is profitable and sometimes the word of god doesn't feel as profitable as it should because we misunderstand the word of god or we overlook themes in the word of god and we misunderstand the purpose of the word of god for our lives and so what i want to do today is i want to do a survey of scripture from the beginning through and we're going to highlight some of the characters that you're familiar with from maybe vacation bible school or in your own study time and we're going to we're going to do a survey and we're going to do like a flash forward through history and we're going to see how God has used interruption from the very beginning all the way to the very end to bring about his purpose in the earth so that we could have abundant life. The first first interruption that occurs is actually Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the Spirit of God was hovering above the water and he spoke and said, let there be light. God interrupted the darkness and created light. That's the very first interruption. It's an eruption from which all of life came and followed. It's an interruption that we wouldn't be here without but it required an interruption. And trying to understand the interruption, science is, wrestles with what to call it and how to name it and what not to name it because we, they want to everybody wants to be careful not to give credit to a designer or no credit to a designer. And so there's a, a fight for language, but whether you call it a Big Bang or a Prime Mover or Divine Origin or however it is that you describe it, something happened in the very beginning and it happened violently. It was an interruption from which all of life came. If the Bible was a movie, it would be a, a really intense m- movie. And if you've ever done a Bible survey, you realize that there's over there's almost 1,200 verses in the Bible, or 1,200 chapters in the Bible. And it only takes two chapters for chaos to enter the world through humanity, where humanity rebels against God. So we have our first cosmic interruption: man's rebellion against the God who created him and made him in his image. It took two chapters. Two chapters, that's it. And there's this interruption. This separation between man and God because man chose to reject the leadership, the love and the lordship of God. And God's insistence in this moment was that he was going to pursue man and he was going to make things right. But that would take many, many chapters to come. Ultimately, it would be, it would be reconciled. It would be settled in the life and the person of Jesus Christ through his death, burial and resurrection. But we're not there yet. There's a whole lot more chaos before we realize that. We meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Actually, he's born. Sweet baby Abram. Sweet baby Abram. We know him as Father Abraham, but before he was Father Abraham, he was baby Abram. And baby Abram was born, and, and, and he lived a remarkably ordinary pagan life. And he was living his best pagan life, probably doing pagan things and worshiping the moon and the stars. He's worshiping animals and sacrificing humans and doing all the things that pagans did in that time. Uh, practicing violence, living for himself, gaining money for himself, living for his own glory, living a, a good pagan life, just like his father had done just like his friends were doing. And then God steps into the picture, and it says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And so God interrupts Abram's pagan life and invites him into something new, into something different, to establish a new line and a new path. Or if you're into Marvel, a new timeline. (laughs) The best timeline possible. But what's amazing to me is that we don't see a cultivated relationship between Abram and God. We just see that Abram was born and then God like introduces himself to, hey, come with me. I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know yet. And God was faithful to do so. Through Abram's interruption, we learn that God is faithful when we're faithless because he can't deny himself. When, when we look at Abram's interruption, we, we realize that God is faithful to do in man what's impossible for man to do by himself because this man who couldn't have children by himself with his wife now becomes the father of many nations at a very old age because of God's provision to him. It started with an interruption that, if we're quite honest, was probably maddening. Has God ever called you to trust him to follow you into something and you weren't sure where it was going to land? Let's not, let's not like whitewash this thing. Abram was probably like, what the hey, God? What the moon? And God's like, I got you. In Genesis 37, we meet a man named Joseph. We love Joseph, don't we? Because we whitewash his life. We make it so easy. So Abram was his father, or Joseph was his father's favorite son, and his father gave him a coat of many colors, and a coat of many colors would have been very, very expensive, and there was symbolism in it. That's not what the sermon is about. And so he gets kind of prideful, and he's having these dreams of people worshiping him and bowing down to him, and he's, like, feeling himself. And so he tells his brother, he's like, hey, I'm pretty much going to be the man when I grow up. And they're like, yeah, we'll take care of that, and they sell him into slavery. If you think you had problems with your siblings... They sold him into slavery. Now, in fairness, a couple of the brothers felt bad about it. I'm sure that felt good for Joseph to know. He's like, well, I'm glad you felt bad about it. While I was in slavery, he ends up being accused of rape, being put in jail in a a dungeon, serving people who forget about him. Anybody serve somebody who forgot about him? How mad were you? <laughs> Imagine being in a dungeon and serving somebody and being forgotten about. So Joseph is, is here, and now, now he's getting called up into, he's getting, he, he gets promoted into, into the king's court and becomes a ruler. And because of the interruption, the many interruptions of Joseph's life, he has the opportunity to save his entire family. You know the Israelites who got delivered out of Egypt by Moses? That was his family. They were in Egypt because there was famine everywhere else in the land, and God had placed him specifically to be able to store up resources to care for the people in the time of famine, and his family benefited from it. His family multiplied, and his family grew and grew and grew, and then they grew in so much favor in Egypt. That's when Pharaoh decided to crack down, and he's like, hey, this is is problematic. If you've seen the movie Ants, it's kind of like that. Pharaoh's the, Pharaoh's the grasshopper, ruling and being awful. And the answer, the people of Israel, if they just knew, they could. Yeah, so Moses becomes that guy. So then we've got Moses. Moses was, Moses was done with that palace life. He, in a fit of rage, murdered a, murdered a guard and then ran for his life. Talk about a life interrupted. This one's interrupted by his own passion. Anybody had their life interrupted by their own passion? Man, you haul off on somebody. You said something. Maybe you did something. That's just the two pastors in the front. That's great. Oh, there we go. It's a few rows back now. Your passion never gotten in the way? Interrupted your life because you have to deal with the circumstances of your passion? Oof, that one hurts because you can't blame anybody else. You're like, dang, I killed that guy. Hopefully not that casually. So Moses goes out, and now he's taking on the life of the farmer, and he gets a wife, and he's probably having, you know, he's got kids. He's raising his family. He's living that farmer life. Anybody, that farmer life attractive to anybody? You know, I drive from Kansas City to Denver every once in a while visiting my family, and I'm like, you know what? That'd be easy. You can watch, my dad said, you can watch a dog run away for three days. just, you just like. There's something about, it. it's just open, it's free, my thoughts just go everywhere. That's pretty, you've driven it, it's pretty true. So he's living that farmer life. You know, he's not worried about his kids, he can see them forever. And in, you know, out there in the desert, and he's living this, this farmer life, and then he's walking along, and there's this bush, and it's on fire. Now here's the thing about ancient bushes, is they caught on fire a lot. I said that casually, kind of silly, but it's reality in the desert, bushes would catch on fire. What was was special is that that bush wasn't burning up, and so it stayed on fire. What happens when a bush normally catches on fire? It goes up, you see the smoke, and then it goes down, and you've got a pile of ash, fire over, bush over, circle of life, let's move on. It'll be something beautiful somewhere else some other time. But what we have with the burning bush is we've got a bush that's not being burned up. And so, so Moses is like, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. And, and let, me, let me say this, that it's not necessarily, let me say, there are lots of burning bushes in our life. It's not a question about whether or not there are burning bushes. It's which ones are we going to give attention to. And so Moses gives his attention to this burning bush. This, uh, of all the things that were interesting in the desert, this was the most interesting because it wasn't being burned up. So he turns aside and he, and he consults this and the bush talks to him. So now his life is going to be interrupted by God. And God's like, hey, I got a plan for those people. I know you were done with that palace life. But you are uniquely qualified to do something Because of your time in the palace and your time taking care of the animals out in the wilderness, there's something just right about you. I'm going to send you back to deliver the people. And he's like, I think this is a bad idea. And he prays my favorite prayer in all of Scripture that we'll cover in a few weeks. And he says, please, Lord, send someone else. Anybody pray that prayer? God interrupts your life. And he's like, hey, I'm calling you to move to Denver to plant a new church. You know, I tried to send like five other people to Denver to plant the church. I was, I was easy. It was easy for me. I was happy. I, I, we had a growing, thriving suburban congregation, people I understood and language I got. And it's like somebody else can move to Denver and figure it out. I don't have tattoos. I'm not cool. I'm like, I don't wear thick framed glasses. I, the only joint I've ever rolled is my ankle. I am, I, I don't belong. I I just, it's like, and then I'm gonna go reach people in Denver. Yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense, right? No, it makes no sense at all. Sometimes God steps into your life and calls you to do something and you'd rather somebody else do it. You'd rather him send somebody else, but he chooses you for reasons you'll never understand. Or maybe, maybe if you're lucky, you'll have the benefit of understanding. But because God interrupted Moses' life, the people of Israel were set free from the captivity of Egypt. And they stand as an enduring symbol of freedom in Christ for all generations, past, present, and forever future. Because his life got screwed up. We, we make it so easy, but it ruined his life to follow God. Job, it's a whole book about how this brother's life was jacked up. And not because he made a mistake, it's because he was righteous. Wow. He was righteous, and God's like, yeah, he's, he's righteous. He's like real righteous. And the devil's like, he's fake righteous. And he's like, he's real righteous. He's fake righteous. The devil's like, let me at him. And he goes, okay, just don't kill him. Just don't kill him. I God, please draw the line somewhere else. Yeah, like, like stop it at paper cuts and maybe a couple of them. And so, so Job loses his family. He loses his possessions. He loses almost his entire life. He suffers great pain. And then his friends come to comfort him. And then they accuse him they like, we knew you weren't righteous. We knew it was a show. You hypocrite. God's judging you. God, he lost his friends. <laughs> Terrible friends. We're those friends too. Those friends come along. Well, you probably did a lot wrong for God to be this mad at you. You ever, <laughs> you ever felt like you did a lot wrong for God to be this mad at you? And so... But Job gets it all back, and so. But through Job, I, for me, the, the story of Job isn't about how he got it all back. Although it's it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Did you know that Job was actually the first book of the Bible written? it was the first one written. So before Genesis was written down, Job was written down, which which answers some questions about, because it, it answers questions for me about what was the priority of early humanity and, and, and their relationship with God. And I think that we've always struggled to understand the problem of pain and the problem of evil. And I think that's why that was the first one written, even though it's set further back in our Bible, is because God wants us to understand that pain and suffering and anguish is not the absence of his presence, but him working something Else out, maybe even for our greater good and his grander plan for our lives. But Job has been encouraging, has encouraged generations and generations and generations and will continue to do throw continue to do so, not through his success and ease, but through his suffering and pain. Now we're gonna leapfrog most of the Bible. And we're gonna see Mary and Joseph. Matthew 118 says, This is how the birth of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit <laughs> what this <laughs> uh there, there are things going around on the internet right now as they do, but I, I'm, I'm amused that it's happening in the middle of the year, and not at Christmas time and this guy's like um you know, hey, hey, honey, the dishes are done and and, and she's like, "Thank you. Uh, I didn't see you move. She, he's like, "Yeah, God did it." And then she goes into the kitchen and the dishes are in the sink, and he goes, "Now you see how it feels. It was dark, it's really dark, Or I told it wrong. It was did you get this did you get this like he was accusing Mary of not getting pregnant by the Holy Spirit? God did it. Things don't get done by God like that." We'll edit that out of the thing. But that's about how smoothly it would have gone over when Mary told Joseph. Like a lead balloon. She would have bombed worse than I just did. And so here she is, (laughs) pregnant by the Holy Spirit in a time when it was only supposed to be celebratory and exciting. And now she's pregnant and everybody's looking on and it's like, oh, what's going on there, Mary? Their lives were divinely interrupted. Of no doing of their own, again, a case where because of their righteousness, difficulty was coming to them, though it would bring with it great, great benefit and great pleasure for the entire world. It was going to be inconvenient and interrupted and incredibly difficult for them. Their lives were interrupted. It's not just a cute little nativity with no pain. It's tons of confusion and pain and faith and endurance and forbearance and forgiveness and walking with Jesus. Well, God, well, literally walking with Jesus. In, in the belly. Yes. Jesus' life, at least from our perspective, was filled with interruptions, whether it's sick people, demonically possessed people, or or in in or or like otherwise harassed and in troubled people were constantly coming to him. Difficulty was constantly coming to Jesus and, and it's surrounding him this difficulty was and and the, the only time that he actually got like a thank you and a blessing, it was scandalous. Because it was a woman who didn't belong in the room, or it was, she, it was a woman with, a, with a, a sketchy reputation, came to say thank you, set an example for all of humanity about how to respond to his presence, but it was a scandal when somebody said thank you to him. I think we got it a little better than Jesus did in a lot of ways. Somebody has said thank you for something without creating a scandal. I say it was, from our perspective, interrupted and, and confusing because, because from our telling, his life was always interrupted. And I'm sure the disciples were constantly bothered by the way that their journey was being interrupted, whether it was, whether it was turning aside for a sick person or turning, around, uh, turning aside for the demoniac or going across the, the, the sea just to heal a couple of people and then to get kicked out of that town. Jesus, it feels like his life was being constantly interrupted, but somehow Jesus is at complete peace with. This. Because to him, he knew they weren't interruptions. It was actually the chaos from which life could be birthed. Jesus in the midst of all of this chaos knew that there was even greater chaos coming and that he was in just a few short months or years, depending on his ministry, from, from allowing him to be uh, put up on a cross, to be killed, and, and then he was going to rise to life. He was going to take the most chaotic moment in all, of, in all of human experience, the most painful moment in all of human experience, the most difficult moment of all of human experience, death, he was going to take it on and he was going to conquer it through his resurrection so that we could all have life, even on the other side of the most chaotic, painful thing that exists in life. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 through 21, we meet a kid who has his lunch stolen by Jesus' disciples. This kid, his mom gave him some lunch, and he's walking along just thinking about eating his lunch, and he's so happy because he's got enough lunch, and the disciples are like, hey, yeah, nice lunch. (laughs) Nice lunch. Nice lunch. We're going to need that. <laughs> to a kid. <laughs> to a kid. We're going to need your lunch. Give me your lunch, kid. And man, can you imagine how that kid felt? Try it today. Take some, take, take no, don't actually try it <laughs> There's no truth <laughs> to taking candy from a baby. It is chaos. Let's not do that. Let's do the opposite. This kid's life was interrupted. Like, and from this, I'm like, man, there's like nobody off limits from the interruption of Jesus. Like kids' lives can be interrupted. And Jesus can step in, but because of the kid's interruption, the entire crowd ate and everybody left with extra. More than enough, because that kid's lunch was stolen. few chapters before that the disciples were fishing and Jesus like come follow me I'll make you fishers of men and their lives were interrupted they had they had businesses they had responsibilities and schedules these aren't like people just banging rocks and like throwing things at animals like they had like a society that they were a part of and taxes to pay and and lives that they were living and their lives were so dead like deeply interrupted by the call of God and so they said yes to it and the rest of their life is an interruption all the way up until most of them died by martyrdom They went from being fishermen, where they would have lived a pretty decent long life and had food and family and comfort, to dying. But because of their life and their death, the power of the gospel has been handed down generation after generation after generation after generation. And if you've received any benefit at all from Jesus, up to and including salvation, it's because their lives were first interrupted. In Matthew 21, the disciples, this gang of disciples, stole a donkey. Because Jesus told them to. <laughs> said as they, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the mount, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to his two disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and once you, uh, once you get there, you're going to find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. It's amazing. Can you imagine Jesus telling, like, if I told you, hey, I need you to go to Aurora for me. You're going you're gonna to see, you're, you're see a Tesla SUV and then a Tesla compact right next to it, like right next to each other. I, I need you to take them. And bring, bring them back. And if anybody says something, tell them David sent you. <laughs> like, y'all, this is in the Bible. This is the chaos that's being unleashed. But because of the chaos that was unleashed on this family whose donkeys were stolen for the day, a prophecy thousands of years old was fulfilled in their, in their, in their scene. So God doesn't just allow chaos to happen for the short-term thing. He allows the chaos to come to satisfy a forever thing in Acts chapter 10. Peter, i got two more examples, and then an observation, and then an invitation to respond. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is living his best life as a disciple of Jesus. He's a part of the way, which is what the Christians were uh, originally called. And he was living this disciple life of Jesus, doing everything he could to represent Christ well. Uh, He was living this out the best that he could. And as a Jewish man, he was staying away from pork, and he was staying away from Gentile people. And he was living his best Christian life with people who were living out the Christian life exactly like he was living out his Christian life. And then Jesus sent him to a tanner's house. And at this tanner's house he has a vision where God lowers down in front of him a sheet filled with things that he shouldn't eat. Things that were unclean to him. Things that that he never could have been near otherwise. Things that would have made him unclean and unfit for himself and for God and the society that he was a part of. And here it is, the sheet lowers in front of him. God interrupts his life and said, don't call unclean what I call clean. Not only is it okay to eat these foods for you, but I need you to relate to the people who are unlike you. God disrupted his life and the gospel spilled out from this small group of Jewish believers to to the Gentile people who is us. So because Peter's life was interrupted, yes. we can know, trust, and follow Jesus. And Paul as well had a similar experience where he was living his best Pharisee life. And he was going along and he was, he was attacking and assaulting Christians because they took the name of Jesus. And he, he was persecuting people of the way. And Jesus appeared to him on this road, blinded him, knocked him off the horse, and is like, hey, change of plans. You two are going to leave everything that you know and everything that you're comfortable with. I'm going to make sense of it all in a way that you could never have imagined. But I'm going to interrupt your life for the benefit of the world. And much much of what we know about the early church and the way they related to him and and, and how they uh, they related to one another and how they related to Judaism and, and to the law is because of Paul's letters. Because his life got jacked up. His life got jacked up. Like Walking away from, from being a Pharisee and becoming a Christian was going to cost him everything. It was going to cost him his pension. It was going to cost him his comfort, his house, his family. God interrupted his life. Jacked it up. Because God wanted to do something far more meaningful. And, and here's the thing about just about every single one of these people is that they never got to see the full impact of what happened through their lives. They never got to see it. Abram never saw nations. Died with a small family. Paul never understood the impact of his writing, though he saw some short-term impact. I mean, talk about short, short-term impact. It was short-term impact punctuated by assassination attempts yes. and pain and suffering and difficulty. And like we're like, hey, God, I want to be famous. Nobody on this list except for Jesus himself understood the impact Of his life on the world. It was interrupted, it was chaotic, and somehow exactly God's recipe for us to live in the fullness of life in Jesus. Some observations. I think sometimes we're anxious because we want a life that's different than the one the Bible describes or that God himself offers us. And we're angry because we can't figure out why we can't get the newer car or the bigger home or the nicer clothes or the perfect relationships. None of those being the things that I see in the lives of the heroes of the faith that we've surveyed today. I see that there are three kinds of disruption, at least if I had more time for the sermon, I'd probably have an alphabet. There are divine interruptions caused by God for the purposes of growth. There are are demonic interruptions caused by the devil, but also used by God for the purposes of growth and revealing his purpose and his loving kindness and his faithfulness to us. And there are dumb interruptions The ones that we just can't make sense out of. It's like, is this the devil or is this divine? Is this this the devil's work or is this God's work? I can't tell the difference between it, but God, yet I will praise you. Well, you sort it out? Those two are used by God for the purpose of growth to reveal his faithfulness and his loving kindness from generation to generation to generation interruptions test our motivations how do you respond when he comes after your lunch how does he how do you respond when he comes after your career how does he come when he how do you come to him when he comes to you for your relationships When he approaches you for your shame or your insecurity, how how is it that you respond to him? He's going to test your motivations. Is this really, are you living for the glory of God or are you living for the glory of self? Are you building unto yourself? Are you building for God and his people? And there's nothing wrong with having a good job. I'm not saying that God's coming for your job. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God's coming for your family. That's not what I'm saying. But when it does feel like those things are at stake, how do you respond? It could be the chaos that God is allowing to enter your life because it's exactly the right recipe for you to live forever. Including because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and saving faith. Final thought, only God can take the mess and the chaos of this life and make it something. Oh, the, the chaos of the mess and the lives that we live and from it bring eternal life. doesn't make sense. I don't understand how the chaos allowed the hermit crabs to live. It's confusing to me that they needed something different than the other animals, but they all needed the chaos at the same time so that they could all grow up together and they could all become a functioning ecosystem so that the world could have a functioning ecosystem. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me that the pain and the difficulty that I face at times in my life, at the same time as the pain and difficulty you face in whatever ways in your life, is somehow also the perfect recipe for life to come to all of us through a revelation of the resurrection of Jesus and its saving power for us. So how do we respond? I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I didn't have time to think this one all the way through, so I think our only option is to respond humbly to God and acknowledge those places of difficulty and pain and confusion, to acknowledge the gap between our understanding and his understanding, just to acknowledge that there is a gap. God, I don't understand. This hurts. I hate it. I don't like it. It's chaotic. It's painful. Can you bring life from this? And I would say also that we need to release control back to the one to whom it belongs. You're not going to, you're not going to like arm wrestle God to a better result. Have you ever tried, have you ever tried, have you ever tried, (laughs) this is a terrible metaphor. Have you ever tried uh, like reasoning or arguing with a toddler? (laughs) Yeah, right. Dinner time, right? It's like, eat this, just eat this. No, eat this, no, eat this, no. It's like it's like the argument you're not going to win. If we can't win an argument with a toddler, what makes us think? If you can't win that argument with your coworker who lacks omnipotence, that's all-powerfulness, and omniscience, being all-knowing, that your coworker lacks those things, and you can't, you can't, Arm wrestle them to your position? What makes us think that we could wrestle God to our position? Family, I believe that in times of chaos and in times of difficulty, God is inviting us to release control, to trust that He oversees the chaos of the ocean of our lives, to trust that He oversees the chaos of the ocean of 2023 of Denver, Colorado, of mental and emotional health, of physical health. He oversees the ocean of the economy and of peace and of war, not just here but globally and for all of time.